So let's pray together, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to our heart, and Lord, that you would encourage us uh, in the things of the Lord as we look at your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In looking at uh, introducing our introduction to John chapter 6, there's, there's three things that, uh, if you're taking notes, that you, you might want to consider. And those three things are is that this is a high point uh, in the ministry of Jesus. It's a turning point or it's a pivot point in the ministry of Jesus. And it's a point of, of, of significance for us. And so John chapter 6 is this high point in the sense that Jesus' ministry, as far as, as numbers, as far as the people that are around him, has, has reached his high point. In other words, that the throngs of people are, are coming to Jesus, the crowds, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people are coming to Jesus because he's working miracles, signs, and wonders in a day and age that didn't have penicillin, in a day and age that didn't have amoxicillin. I mean, these very basic, almost in today, is very primitive uh, interventions that can be done. They didn't have any of that. They didn't have an x-ray machine or MRI, or they didn't have an emergency room. So if you got, if you got injured, you got sick, you were likely to what? You were likely to die. You are likely to pass away. And so Jesus comes offering these people hope, and they're thronging to him. There's an interesting dynamic in this high point of Jesus' ministry is that it becomes a pivot point or a turning point. Jesus is not interested in many of the things that drive church life today. He's not interested in nickels or noses or noise. He's interested in mission and ministry. And so there's a pivot that he does when he begins telling his disciples, his followers, look, guys, the crowds, the nickel, the noise, the noses, those are, that's not my focus. My focus is doing the will of the Father, and the Father has sent me to rescue. The Father has sent me to save. And Jesus pivots and begins telling his disciples that I must go to Jerusalem. I must go. I must go to be that propitiation. I must go to be a sacrifice. I must go and give up my life. I must go so that the Father could be glorified as I die and as I'm buried, that the Father could be exalted in my resurrection. I must go so that I can complete the Father's plan of redemption. So I give up as the Lamb of God, as the, as the um, Passover Lamb. I give up my life for the sins of many, and I give it up freely to go to the cross, to die in the cross, to be buried, and on the third day, Romans 4.25, to be raised for our justification. And so he pivots away from the crowds. Who would ever do that today? But Jesus was focused on his message and his mission and his ministry and he pivots towards that. And what we're going to find at the end of John chapter 6, what happens when he does that? Many go away. Many are offended. Many go away. But Jesus stays resolute 
and what the Father has called him. So it's a high point, it's a turning point, and it's a significant point. Because what we note here is the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than what? Resurrection from the dead. It's the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. And it's, it appears in all four, four Gospels. Why? Well, that's the question we need to answer. Why is the feeding of 5,000 so significant? Why is it such a sign? Matter of fact, it's not even when you harmonize the gospel, we find out that it's not just 5,000 because John left out the women and children. So it's more likely 10,000. What's so significant about that? Well, you got to understand a little bit, a little bit of the geography, a little bit of the history, uh, that something was so significant in those days that Jesus demonstrating his ability to meet that need is the thing that's significant. In our day and age, we have much, you know, went out, went out with to dinner last night and we had a smorgasbord of food. But in those days, in Bible days, the most important staple food was what? It was bread. When I was a, a young guy, spent uh, exactly 54 weeks on a mountain in Turkey by, into Kurdistan. And it was like going back to Bible days in, in the mid-1970s. They had one-room uh, mud-brick homes. They were subsistence farmers. They had these little herds of goat. Where they, they gather up the dung from the goats and put it on the sunny side uh, of their little one-room mud-brick uh, house. And they'd use that little dung for food in the winter. But there's one thing that they ate over and over again. It was their staple. It was, it was bread. And when Jesus comes and feeds, their, soul, feeds their, their bellies, the sign is, is that he's the source of all nourishment. He's the source of all spiritual hope. He's the source of, of all that we would ever need, all that we would ever desire, that the fulfillment of that is found in Jesus because it's through the miracle of him breaking bread it's through the hands of Jesus that the people were satisfied and they were in awe. So it is, a, it is a high point. It is a turning point. And it is oh so significant even for us today. Let's take a look at the text. Let's look at verses one through four. It says, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now there's two names here. Tiberius was a city that I believe was founded in about 20 AD. And so all John's doing here is he's not causing confusion. He's just giving that he's just giving the, the color to it, that he knows where it's specific that Jesus is at the sea, the sea of Galilee. And at that sea, a large crowd was following him because they saw the what? They saw the miracles, right? They saw that he was healing the sick. That's part of that that promise that Jesus said that he'd come to heal the blind, heal the sick, set the captives free. People in bondage and chains, not just, you know, uh, economic, but severe physical bondage in those days. Lack of a remedy. Jesus says, I'll be the remedy because he's come to free those in bondage. Give eyesight to the blind and to heal the afflicted, and to set them free. 
The crowds were thronging. They were on their way to the Passover. And they were detoured because Jesus, the rabbi, the miracle worker, gave them hope and gave them a future. Take a, take a look at the text. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. And we know that it's so critical to harmonize gospel accounts because Jesus was wiped out. The disciples were wiped out. So he says, man, there's been, uh, the ESV goes, there is no leisure time. There's no time to have lunch. And so Jesus says to his disciples, let's go away. And so they go up into the hillside and John gives us another point of interest. He says that it's the Passover. Now John gives us three Passovers. That's why we know that Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years long. So all these affirming historical points are, are meant to inform us and to encourage our heart to have confidence in God's word, that John is true, a true witness to what is happening. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes, and we know from Matthew, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he looks at them, he says, lifting up his eyes and, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Some of the disciples who said, hey, this crowd's too big. We don't want anything to do with them. Send them, send them away from us. That's not Jesus. That's not, that's not what he's got a plan to do. He's got a two-fold plan here. We're going to find out about it in just a moment. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to do what? To test him, for he himself knew, Jesus knew what he was going to do. So there's a test here. There's a test that Jesus is doing. It's predetermined. He knows what he's going to do. And the test is going to involve not only Philip, but it's going to involve Andrew. Take a look at the text with me. Philip, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, if you're Scottish, Andrew's the patron saint of where? Yeah, it's not a trick question. <laughs> we have some Scottish people here. No offense, but Andrew's a little dense, but here we go says one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a, <laughs> that's like great insight, huh? There is a boy here who has five barley loaves, cheapest bread on the market, and two pickled fish. But what, what are they, <laughs> hey, what are they for so many? There's a test going on here that takes place in the greater context. Pyrazo is the word for, for, for test. It's better translated in the King James Version, as to prove. In other words, Jesus testing the disciples was not a test where Jesus wanted them to fail. When Jesus tests us or proves us, it's not designed for us to be a failure. You know, I've shared with you a couple of weeks ago that I was a high school Bible teacher. And the principal, Jennifer Najum, she had a hard time at different points because I would give the answers to the test before I gave the test because it's in the heart of Jesus. Who wants someone to fail? Right. 
So you give the answers to high schoolers. What do you think they're going to do with those answers? They're going to memorize them. They're going to get the content in their heart. Isn't that a win-win? Jesus here is proving the disciples, testing the disciples so that they could, so that they could understand what God was doing in their heart so that they could understand where their point of growth was, not their point of failure. And the point of growth here is to recognize what's impossible and go to Jesus with it. Was, was feeding 10,000 people possible? Absolutely not. It was impossible. And so Jesus starts with Philip. Do you know where Philip lived and grew up? He grew up in the same, he grew up in the area. It's a desolate area. Philip was, was from Bethesda. And Philip knew, hey, there's no bakeries in this area, and there, and there ain't no money. We don't got no money. You know where Jesus got most of his money from? Women. Wealthy women supplied Jesus' needs. But we won't go down that road today. We'll get there another day, though. And so Philip says, the, Philip is like, man, this is impossible and we don't have any money, and I don't know what to do. And Andrew's a little brighter, not much, but Andrew comes along and does the survey, you know, he does the church survey to figure out where the resources are, and he comes up and he says, oh, we got this little boy here who has these little biscuits made out of barley and a couple pickled fish, but, you know, he gets at the same place. It's impossible. What's the lesson here? is there's things in your life that are going to come along that are impossible. What's the growth point? Don't try to figure it out in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own resources. Go where? Go to Jesus. You know, every single one of us are going to face impossible situations in our life. I don't know what yours have been. I've had quite a few in the last few years where everything's dark, Everything is without hope, except this. I got Jesus. I got the Son of God. I've got the creator of the universe. I've got the logos. I've got the person that holds all things together. And guess, guess what? I'm his friend. I'm his son. He loves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. That's my Jesus. Who's your Jesus? My Jesus never leave me. It's the impossible that drives me to him. Philip and Andrew, they didn't need to figure it out. Their lesson, their test was simply to do this. Jesus, it's impossible. What are you going to do? When you get to that place in your life, you're going to grow. You're going to mature. You're going to have joy in the midst of every circumstance that comes along in your life. You know, this week we had a glorious... We had a glorious resurrection service. You know what happens later in the week? Some, so I get the, get the phone call. And it totally just kind of blows me out of the water. My kayak gets flooded. I begin sinking. And I say, wait a minute. I just experienced something glorious. It's old Slewfoot. It's the devil. He's trying to discourage me. But I took the, I took the 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> I call Nancy, Nancy, no one understands. <laughs> and, 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 then I, then I, 
Maybe at some point, I don't know whether it's Nancy said, come on, woo out of that. But you, you, you learn. When your heart's broken, you go to Jesus. When your world's overrun, you go to Jesus. That's the lesson he wanted to teach Philip and Andrew. Because why? Their world was going to be overrun. Their Savior, Jesus, was going to die on the cross, and they would be in the darkest time in their life. He wanted to teach them, when you're, out, when you're outgunned and outnumbered, you can trust in Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Verse 10. Jesus said this, have the people sit down. Notice Jesus' response to the failing grade. And I'm not suggesting they failed, saying that they had to learn a lesson, but what was Jesus' response to them? Does he shame them? He says, oh, you, I mean, look at the 12 he chose. It, it's a miracle that we're here. It's a miracle that the church went forward. Why? It's a miracle because it's, it, Jesus died for the church, not the apostles. It's his church. That's another sermon. Jesus doesn't shame them, doesn't guilt them, simply lets that lesson sink in. And then he gets real practical. He says, have the people sit down, put them in 50s, put them in 100s. Take a look at the text with me. We'll read it. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place because it was springtime, it's Passover. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We know from harmonizing the Gospels, it was at least 10. Jesus then took the loaves and... When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, and as much as they wanted. And when they, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when people saw the sign that he had done, they said this, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What is a contemporary response? What is your response to this miracle? Well, one contemporary response is, oh, the people had plenty of food. They all had their little bag lunch, but they were selfish. And this little boy's lunch shamed them. And so they all gathered up and they had a, they all gathered up the food. And because they all gathered up, no one had any want. You believe that? How about the next one? Contemporary response. Oh, it was a token meal. And they take, Jesus giving thanks. It's the word Eucharist. He said, oh, it's just a token meal. It's just like, it's just like a, it's like a big Lord's table day. Just a little teeny bit of fish, just a, teeny, just a, just a crumb of a bread. They were just thanking God. Or maybe it was a miracle. Maybe it was a sign. Maybe the incarnate son of God provided food to the point that their bellies were full and they were satisfied. And out of those broken, broken pieces of bread and fish, 
12 huge man-sized baskets were left over because Jesus wanted to communicate to the people of his day that you can count on Jesus to be the provider and the sustainer of your soul. You can trust him. And so, (laughs) perceiving in their heart that this is Moses, this is the one, the manor and the quail. This is the prophet that was promised. They try to take things into their own hands. And Jesus said, I'll have none of it because it's not my mission, nor my purpose to become a worldly king when I've left my father's side and I have a kingdom, but I have a mission and a purpose to accomplish. And Nichols and noses and noise mean nothing to Jesus. What means the most to Jesus is your soul and your heart. When we look at narratives like this, these narratives, we've known these. If you, I, I didn't grow up in Sunday school. But if you grew up in Sunday school, these narratives can be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that. Oh, yeah. And so my challenge to you in closing this morning is, who are you in this narrative? I mean, who are you? Who do you, who can you most likely identify with? Are you Philip, who's a local townie? Knows there's no bakeries, knows there's no money, and just gives up. Are you that? You know, years ago, in 1993, we were leasing units 9 and 10 over here. And we got a notice from the government. You always take notice when the IRS or somebody like that sends you a letter. And the letter was this. You are no longer to send your $4,000 rent to Al, who was the owner of the building. You're to send it to, I forget the name, but it was a government agency that during the savings and loan fiasco, many, many of these properties went under receivership. The federal government came in and took them over. They said, you're going to send your check there. Oh, and by the way, we're tasked by Congress to sell this building, which we're in now, to nonprofits first before they put it on the market because they don't want the market to tank. And we're all sitting around the the poobahs of the church, you know, poobahs. And the poobah said, well, we don't have no money. We don't have any money in our checkbook. We're just going from, on a good, on a good day, we're going month to month. <laughs> on a regular day, we're going week to week. And on a bad day, well, we don't want to talk about that. So we're all standing, sitting down in my little office there. See, we don't have no money. And I said, it don't matter. It don't matter that we don't have any money. Because God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and we're called to be here. And we're going to put in a bid for the whole thing. Well, well, that was a little bit more than what God wanted to give us. But he did give us this. And within four or five months, and you got to understand, we're all, we're, all, we're all young people, like some of you. You don't think I was ever there. I mean, it's like a, it's like, you know, like a mystery, like... Like, could he ever be there? 
way, way back. And so we had, we had babies. Becky was a baby. Timmy was a baby. We had no money. But God provided $100,000 within four or five months. So we had a down payment, and we had a place at least to get the lights on. My God is my provider. My Jesus is the one I count on. Who's your Jesus? My Jesus is the one. Break. Break the bread. Keep on breaking the bread. Break the fish. And fed 10,000 people. And it was impossible. What's your impossible situation today? And who are you? Are you Philip? Are you Andrew? He's kind of a wisecracker. You know, who looks at the thing and says, hey, man, here's this boy. You know, he's got a little pale lunch and let's, you know, hey, but there ain't nothing there. Are you that who does the church surveys and then says, oh, well, it's impossible. Guess we can't do anything. Well, it's impossible. I, I don't think we could do the field. I don't think we could put electricity. Is that you? Are you the multitude? You got the Bible part right. He's the prophet that Moses promised but then you get the application wrong. Let's make him king rather than the understanding the suffering servant. Or are you harmonizing the gospel? Are you this disciple, Mark chapter 6, verse 36? Are you this disciple who did not want to be bothered by the needs of the people, but suggested to send the people off to fend for themselves? Now, I don't want to get too political here, but we could apply this. Are you the disciple who doesn't want to be bothered by the immigrants? Are you the disciple who doesn't want to be bothered with the homeless? Are you the disciple that says it's a little bit too much for us to handle? And so push the little bums along because we ain't going to deal with it. Who are you? Because when you get to that place, then, you can experience transformation. Then you can say, this is impossible. Jesus, what do you want to do? Say amen. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table this morning.